I am Naya Swami Maria, for those of you who don't know me. And I'm going to let our panel of many speakers this morning introduce themselves when they uh, come up to talk. So our subject is how to develop a deeper relationship with God. And I wanted to begin with Yogananda's words, just a few of them from the beginning of his poem, When I Am Only a Dream. And he says, I come to tell you all of him and the way to encase him in your bosom. When we think of the scope of Yogananda's mission, and indeed it was and is grand, and all that was established and moved forward on into eternity by that very incarnation, I think we have to say that the most important thing was that he said that each one of us can have a personal relationship with God. And he showed us how to realize that. That we need not a church or an organization as intermediary. Ananda is both of these, but so much, much more. Do not be fooled. This work, this ray is dedicated to giving each single person the knowledge, the awakening, that they can directly experience God, that they can have a personal relationship with God, that we need not be affiliated with any particular belief system, that we need not seek a life of solitude in the desert or in the Himalayan caves, that we need not even be a monastic. While all of these are beautiful and valid paths, as we might feel to embrace them, all of it is about developing, cultivating a personal relationship with God. When Yogananda was a young boy, his brother Sananda Lalgosh told this, and Sananda said of Yogananda that even when he heard the word God, just the word God, his eyes would fill with tears to overflowing. I think that's probably what we love most about him. His life was so rich in the dynamic awareness of the God within. Swami Kriyananda said that we must develop a concept of God that motivates us to love him more deeply, that motivates us to have and develop and be concerned with, first and foremost, nurturing that relationship with God. By nature, our relationship with God is personal. How can it be otherwise? We are made in the image of God. We are born of the consciousness of God. So in truth, how can it really be anything less than deeply personal? When I was considering this topic, 
my heart instantly came to rest on the exchange between Swami Kriyananda, then Donald Walters, and his guru, Paramhansa Yogananda, at their first meeting. Yogananda said to, I'll say Swamiji for now, said to Swamiji, I am only seeing you because Divine Mother told me to, for no other reason. And this took Swamiji aback because he had never heard of Divine Mother. He had never heard of this concept of Divine Mother speaking and guiding the Master, the devotee. And afterwards he said of it, I had no idea that Divine Mother took such an interest in me. But indeed, she takes great interest in each one of us, personal interest in things we probably consider trivial and not meaningful. Our Divine Mother, our Heavenly Father, is very personally interested, very personally engaged in what we think, what we feel, what we experience. And as I was considering this situation more deeply, this meeting of these two great souls. Remember Master's words to Swamiji, I give you my unconditional love. Will you also give me yours? And Swamiji responded saying, yes. And then Yogananda went on and he said, and do you give me your unconditional obedience? And at this point, Swamiji says he hesitated a little bit. He didn't want to, but he had to be honest with himself. And he said, what if I think that you've done something wrong? And Yogananda said, I will never ask you to do anything that God has not instructed me to do. The scriptures of India say that the guru is the voice of silent God. And these two points, unconditional love, unconditional obedience, these are really at the core of a personal relationship with God. What do we have if we have not unconditional love? You know, life is as it is. And challenges come, tests come, karmic bombs come from left field, land in our lap and explode. Someone treats us unjustly. All manner of things happen to us in a singular life. And what are we without unconditional love? We blame our friends. We blame our guru bhais. We blame our circumstance. We blame our family. And we blame God. We blame God for getting us into this mess. We blame God for creating this situation that we don't like and aren't very comfortable with. And then that door, which is always open and has its own magnetism, perhaps it beckons to us and tries to pull us away. And people do leave the path. And people do make different choices. Without unconditional love, we can't meet that consciousness, that divine and very personal being 
who is giving to us everything out of love to free us, to teach us how to love more deeply. So these two are very core. Yogananda's direct disciple, Sister Gyana Mata, she was throughout her life riddled with ill health. And it never got in the way of anything. And Master said after she passed, Yogananda said, no matter what happened to her, no matter what beset her, her love for God never wavered. That unconditional divine love, that gift of God through us that we are capable of. And what of unconditional obedience? That one, I imagine we all, like Swamiji, hesitate a little bit around those words, that coupling of words. We all have enough rebel in us to want to hold on to a little bit of control, at least a little bit of ego, personal opinion, and whatnot. Unconditional obedience. Swamiji defined this for us as cooperative obedience. So that's what is being asked here, to assume, to grow in a personal relationship with God, with Divine Mother, is to want to cooperate with that consciousness, to get in tune with that consciousness, to try and intuit and express that consciousness to feel as the master feels, to think as the master thinks, to understand what is being said when on the outside it doesn't make any sense at all. It's not to blindly follow, not by any means, not at all. It's to get in tune with that divine consciousness, to commune with it, to feel yourself a part of it. That is very, very personal. Yogananda asked Swamiji to come out to 29 Palms, and he talks about this in his autobiography, The New Path. Such a wonderful and funny and profoundly deep story and exchange to help build a swimming pool. It wasn't a big pool. If you've seen it, it's really pretty small, more like a sitting pool, deep, and it was to take a certain amount of time, but it became something much, much bigger. And it was a deep hole, and it was in the sands of the desert, and it was intense heat, I imagine, the summer desert sun or even the winter desert sun. <laughs> Just kind of austere and tense out there. And him and a couple of the other monks set about this project and certainly Swamiji was delighted to be there out at Master's Retreat to perhaps see him coming and going. But did that make it personal? You know, when Master came out and instructed them what he wanted and how he wanted it and then came out and changed it. They dig this deep hole, they move it. All the sand is in one spot. Master comes out, tells them to move it to another spot, move it to a third spot, level it, get rid of it. You know, they're working all day tirelessly, tireless, tirelessly, at least trying to. And Master is encouraging them. Maybe he's pushing them. At one point, he brings out a little token sandwich, hardly enough to satiate the 
hunger that they've developed in this project. But none of that makes it personal. What makes it personal is that the devotee, Swamiji, all the while was trying to tune in to the consciousness of his guru, trying to understand what was beneath the project, what was beneath the words, what was inside of them, truly the heart of Yogananda. That's what was really going on, and that's what the personal relationship is. It's that quality of communion on a very high level that everything of our path and teaching is trying to inspire us to rise up to. And that's what makes these two so very core, unconditional love, unconditional obedience. Swamiji said that to be with Master, he could just be laughing about something, a joke, a circumstance. But if you looked into his eyes, you were just drawn in to that ocean of bliss, that ocean of divine consciousness. That's personal. I wanted to just close with some words of Yogananda's to his direct disciple, Rajasi Janakananda. And Yogananda was traveling. He was on his way to India to see his guru, Sri Yukteswar, for the last time. And he wrote to Rajasi frequently. And this letter, a part of this letter, which I'll read, was written from Athens, uh, from Yogananda to Rajasi. And Yogananda tells us here how to have a personal relationship with God. Whenever you desire to commune with any saint, think first of his image in the spiritual eye. Then relax and concentrate in the heart, trying to feel some of his main characteristics. For instance, of Swami Shankara, think of wisdom. Of Lahiri Mahashai, a joyous perception and wisdom and devotion. Of Yogananda, joyous perception and wisdom and devotion. Of Sri Yukteswarji, wisdom and calm perception of bliss. Then lose yourself in the perception and the soul of those individuals will possess you. You will act, reason, think, feel like them. Sometimes this might last for hours or days. When this is perfected, ultimately you will see them with closed eyes. When that can be done at will, you will see them with open eyes. When that can be done, you will see them with open eyes. This is the mystery of inner communion with the saints. Practice that with unfailing zeal until you are certain of this communion.
Good morning. My name is Dharma Devi. I wanted to start by telling you about the first time that I was scheduled to give a public lecture. And that was in Los Angeles, and Swamiji was there. And he had just created and launched the Akash Lessons, uh, which is Ancient Keys to Attaining Success and Happiness. And he put out a strong call to everyone there to get these lessons out. And I said, Swami, I, I would like to do that. And he said, but I don't know if that's going to work because you're shy. <laughs> and I took that as a challenge because I think it was. Um, and so I rented a big public venue, the Women's Club of Hollywood, that uh, could seat up to 300 people. And I got like a thousand posters printed. I hired a street team that goes out flyering, and they posted thousands of flyers all over L.A. And I was ready. <laughs> I was not at all ready, but... <laughs> uh, Narayan was so gracious to come with me. I went really early to meditate, get set up. I was like, I'm getting on the stage I'm not going to be down at ground level. I'm going up on the stage. I've got the mic, the PA system. It went all out. So the, the program was scheduled to start at 7. 6.30, we were practicing our song. Nobody came. I was like, okay, well, people in L.A. are late usually. It's okay. 7 o'clock rolls around. Nobody was there. So I said, well... There's a lot of traffic today. There's some parade happening. And 7.30 comes, and finally we see two people walking up. And uh, it was the, the lead of the street team. <laughs> she came to see how well the, the turnout would be. So, and she brought a friend. So we made a little circle, and... And we shared the teachings. And I went home and I was thinking, God, what a flop. I mean, that was bad. <laughs> but I felt so much bliss in my heart. I was blown away. And it lasted through the next morning. So that's why I'm here <laughs> this morning, because I'm counting on that bliss being multiplied by all of you. <laughs> So our topic, as Maria said, on um, cultivating a personal relationship with God. And I chose to talk about cultivating a relationship with God as the beloved. So I want to read to you one of my favorite passages from the Bhagavad Gita. Cling thou to me. Clasp me with heart and mind. So shalt thou dwell surely with me on high. But if thy thought droops from such height, if thou beest weak to set body and soul upon me constantly, despair not. Give me lower service. Seek to reach me, worshiping with steadfast will. 
And if thou canst not worship steadfastly, work for me. Toil in works pleasing to me. For he that laboreth right for love of me shall finally attain. But if in this thy faint heart fails, bring me thy failure. And just before this passage, Arjuna is asking Krishna, who is the best versed in the science of yoga? And he says, this is Krishna, those who with minds fixed on me are ever united to me in pure devotion are in my eyes the best versed in yoga. So how can we create a relationship with God as the beloved? I wanted to offer three simple things that came to me as I was thinking of this. Ask, listen, and love. And all good things make good acronyms. So here's our acronym, ALL. (laughs) So ask. Don't play games with God. God knows our hearts. God knows without us even asking. Um, When I was living at the village, there was a meeting with Swamiji that was about the Bodhi Tree bookstore. It was going to be sold, and it was a meeting to see if that was something that Ananda should look into purchasing. I had no idea why I was asked to be at that meeting, but I figured it was because Narayan was working at Crystal Clarity, and I had the good fortune of being married to Narayan. So there I was, and everyone was throwing out different ideas of why or why not we should, we should purchase it. And it became clear we needed to do some more research. We needed to be there and uh, to look into it more closely. And so Swamiji turns and looks right at Narayan and says, the only person I can think to go is you. And then he looked next to Narayan where I was seated and said, but you're doing something else, aren't you? And we had just launched the uh, virtual community that weekend. It was just July 4th weekend. And uh, my mouth dropped open (laughs) because this was a a project we had been working on for quite a while. And uh, my second response after my mouth dropping open was to look at Jyotish and Devi. And I must have looked just totally dumbfounded, but really it was one of the moments in my discipleship that I'm actually the most proud of because I knew that I wanted to go. I knew that I had that desire to, to go, to go out and share the teachings, and here we were being asked to go to L.A. But rather than do what I usually do, which is, yes, of course we'll go, <laughs> it was I looked at Jyotish and Devi because they had come to be my mentors, my spiritual parents, And it was the most beautiful thing when I looked at Davy and she was going, say yes, say yes. (laughs) And I knew she meant say yes to Swami and make it snappy. (laughs) And and Jyotish said just very lovingly and impersonally, no one is indispensable. That's a whole other lesson 
into, unto itself. But, uh, of course, we said yes, and we were in L.A. two months later, not to get the Bodhichi bookstore, but for a whole other purpose. But So that brings me to the next one, listen. Listening, we have to listen without an agenda, without hearing or listening for what we want to hear, but for what is actually the truth which takes me a little further back when I first moved to Ananda Village. And uh, for those of you who don't know the process, you move into Chandi House, which is the group house here, and you stay there for a year. And it's really to feel if this is the right place for you. And like Maria was talking about the rebellious nature, (laughs) that really started coming out in me. So <laughs> so about four months into my stay at Chandi, I was just at the breaking point. And I went for a walk with Narayan, I remember, and I was just letting him have it. <laughs> I was venting, and it was, it was bad venting. But... Um, what am I doing here? I'm regressing spiritually. I'm, I, this can't be right. And uh, very dramatic. Um, and I worked myself into a pretty good frenzy. I got back to my little beautiful room at Chandi, and I looked at this picture hanging over my bed of Master. And I said, Master, if you don't make it really clear that I'm supposed to stay... I'm packing my bags, and I'm leaving. And just an instant later, I heard very clearly in my head, stay. And I knew it was master because my ego was screaming so loudly the exact opposite, go, get out of here, you can't stay. But there it was, stay. So I knew it was master. And... Of course, listening isn't usually so dramatic. Um, Usually, we have to listen so carefully because Master talks to us in a whisper, usually. But if we're sincere and we say, I won't do this unless you tell me to do this, then God responds no matter what. So finally... Love. And I was wondering why there was not much coming to me when I was thinking about love. And then I heard Diksha's talk on Tuesday about devotion, and I said that was why. It was so perfect, just the natural unfolding. And it really comes by cultivating that relationship, asking, listening. How can we know God if we don't have this dialogue, this personal relationship with God? So ask, listen, but then in that process, learn to love God more deeply. And I was thinking how these three kind of form in a way. It's a little bit of a stretch, so bear with me. Master's uh, divine equation. So 25%. We 
ask, we open ourselves, we make ourselves receptive. And 25% is, as Master said, the, the, great, the guru's effort on our behalf, which you could say is listening because the guru can give us guidance, but if we don't listen, then it's not going to get us very far. And then loving is really like the grace, the 50% God's grace, that it just comes in. And we don't know where it came from, but we love. So I'm going to close. I was raised Catholic. There's a little still lingering in there. (laughs) This is a psalm. It's a rendition of a psalm. I believe it's Psalm 63. And it's sung pretty regularly at the Catholic Church. It was one of my favorites. And the words are, My soul thirsts for you, Lord, like a desert thirsts for rain. It is your face I long for. You alone are life to me. So I'll do my best. My soul thirsts for you, Lord, like a desert thirst for rain. It is your face I long for. You alone are life to me. Thank you. Spiritual New Week is a family reunion. (laughs) And uh, when you see your family uh, that you haven't seen in a while, you want a hug, right? So, let's have it. (laughs) Come on. I'm serious. (laughs) Get the arms out. Come on. Can you feel? (laughs) 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 Okay, now, but I want you to feel me hugging you, too. Now, if you'll go into hugging consciousness, close your eyes. Hugging isn't physical. It's your heart's energy flowing towards another being. It's also receiving the love, listening, receiving that love from that other being. Now let's add God's presence and God in the form of the guru to that hug. Now God is loving God. We're perceiving that love. We're living in that love.
We perceive it with the soul. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Meranam Nayaswami Vijay. Medagar Noida Bharatame Abhi Abhi Mebahot Kush Yaha to be. This is Hindi. This is uh, my name is uh, Nayaswami Vijay, and uh, my home now is in uh, Noida, India. And I'm very happy here to be. <laughs> the subject that I've been given uh, is intuition. I was talking to my son and uh, my son Kai, whose uh, real name is Kaivalya, uh, the state of absolute oneness with God. I told him that subject was intuition and that I was, you know, giving it some thought, trying to plan a little bit. <laughs> he grew up here. He knew right away the mistake that I had made. So he said, Dad, you're talking on intuition. I said, well, okay, but it's, it's good to have a backup plan. So I do have a backup plan, just in case. So uh, I need your help. I, I have a question. How many of you have had a, an experience of what you would describe as intuition? Raise your hand. OK. Almost everybody. Now, raise your hand again if you always have that experience. I'm the only one. <laughs> well, let's, uh, when we communicate, it's sometimes difficult to understand each other because we don't use the same words. We don't have the, the same definition of the words that we're using. So let's define a couple of words so that we can be sure that we're on the same page. So, uh, what is God? God is everything. Yes? God, where is God? God is everywhere. God is also beyond everything and everywhere. Yes? Okay. So what is the soul? The soul, as Master described it, is individualized spirit. What is spirit? God. So we are all individualized spirit. And what that means is that we are God. How does that feel to be God? Does, it, does this feel like God? We're used to thinking that God is out there. But we are in here. We're individualized and the soul has become identified with the body. The body is 
the covering of individualized spirit. So underneath the surface of what we experience is the soul. So if God is everything and everywhere, then this hand is God. He said, well, the hand of God? I don't think so. (laughs) But the reality is that it's a part of God. It's not all of God. It's part of God. But what is the soul? The pure soul is all of God. But when it becomes individualized and identified with the ego personality and a body, it becomes limited. But that limitation doesn't mean that it's disconnected from that larger reality. It means that it can't perceive that larger reality. And the whole spiritual path, the whole uh, experience that we have coming through the creation is going from an extremely limited ability to perceive God to the ultimate absolute perception of God. Intuition is the, excuse me, I think I need, this is uh, God as old age. Intuition, as Master described it, is the soul's power of knowing. So how does God know that God is God? Intuition. It's the, the direct perception of truth. Truth is that which exactly corresponds to reality. Reality is God. So when we describe all of intuition, we're describing the direct perception of all of God. But the soul's power of perception is stepped down like an electronic uh, transmission system down into this form. But it doesn't stop becoming the soul's power of perception. It's just a very limited ability to perceive. And we've been given in the spiritual life very specific techniques to awaken this direct perception. We awaken it through all of the spiritual practices that we have. Most importantly, energization, Hongsa practice, Om practice, and Kriya. These are powerful techniques. But remember, intuition, the very power to think, the very power to perceive through the physical body is activated by the power of intuition. It's just stepped down. So we, as the natural way that we are made, we perceive intuitionally, even though we've been hypnotized into thinking that we think through the brain and that we need to use the, uh, the, the sense organs in order to have perceptions. This is the hypnotic effect of maya. We are spirit, and our way of perception is intuition. Intuition. 
And we have become so attached to the body that we can't access that intuition consciously. As we meditate and as we practice going into stillness, deeper and deeper levels of stillness, we will perceive more and more directly our, and awaken our ability to perceive intuitively. So just by the very fact that we do these practices, we're automatically clearing our ability to perceive. But one of the things that holds us back the most is restlessness. The mind you go to sit to meditate, we're restless. Do you remember the story of uh, Sri Teshwar meeting Babaji in the autobiography of a yogi uh, underneath the banyan tree? And the thing is, you know, now you have to give appreciation to Sri Teshwar for playing this particular part. <laughs> because he's an avatar. He knows what's going on. But in that moment, in the play, he plays the part of, he saw Babaji, he got so excited. And then his cultural... Uh, a conditioning took over. Oh, I have to give a physical offering to Babaji. So he, so he said, I've got to go get these sweets. So here, here's Babaji. <laughs> and I, I got to go. I got to go get sweets. <laughs> well, when he came back, Babaji was gone. But then as the story unfolds, uh, we later find out that Babaji wasn't actually gone. But his, uh, Sri Teshwar's ability to perceive Babaji's presence had dissolved because of restlessness. And later Babaji said, you, you verbally extinguished me in the ether because of your restlessness. We extinguish our ability to perceive God directly through intuitive perception because of the restless mind, because of the fact that we have become so habituated to living through the physical body. I think one of the greatest lessons and examples that I personally have received from uh, association with Ananda and Kriyanandaji is watching Swamiji, and he talked about Master doing the same thing, and he did it. And of course, we've seen everyone else learning how to do it, is to recognize that in every moment of life, there is an opportunity to perceive God's presence. And the way that we do that is that we attune inwardly in that silent, calm center to spiritual, to God presence, to soul truth underneath the surface of all the ups and downs of daily life. So it doesn't matter what's going on out here, we connect in here. And over time, that connection becomes stronger and stronger until it becomes the natural way that life proceeds around you. I have two stories to tell in three minutes. <clears throat> so uh, I think this was in the, in the 90s. Uh, I had never been to the Seattle Center and I had a reason to go up uh, to Seattle. And uh, so I went, and uh, I decided that I didn't want to uh, get a hotel room, so I would arrive, at, you know, like at midnight, one in the morning, 
and rent a car and sleep in the car in the parking lot of the center. And it was going to be Sunday, so and then I'd go and clean up a little bit and go to Sunday service. Well, I forgot to find out where the center is. So I had no idea where it was, and I'm there at 1 o'clock in the morning, and I'm driving down the road in the rental car towards Seattle at uh, the airport south of town, and I'm driving, and I'm thinking, okay, Divine Mother, you know, what are we going to do? <laughs> this relationship, this intuitive. So I'm driving down the road. This is called synchronicity. This is one of the ways that intuition manifests. So I'm driving down the road, I'm, think, I'm thinking, what do I do? I'm using my mind, but I'm also connecting, connecting, going, okay, you know, we need to solve this. So I, I drove down the road for 20 or 30 minutes. I don't even know if I've gone through Seattle, I'm halfway to Canada. And uh, I finally, I see a gas station, I think I'm going to go in there and look it up in the phone book, see if there's a map. Because uh, there was no cell phones and GPS, all that stuff. So I go up the, finally, finally I see a station, but there's no exit. So I go up to the off-ramp, I get off, and then I turn back towards the station in a parallel road to the freeway. Now, I'd been looking for a gas station for some time. Finally, I found one. So I'm going through this, like, business section, and the lights are on, and I'm... Uh, it's the middle of the night. I'm looking, looking, looking. Uh, Ananda Center. <laughs> What's the Ananda Center? I pulled into the parking lot. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, I went to Swamiji's house uh, when he was living in the dome at the Crystal Hermitage before the Crystal Hermitage was there. It was just the dome. This was in the 70s. And uh, he used to go into seclusion occasionally, and he would um, go into silence. And uh, I was uh, working at the publication building, and uh, I knew that the mail would go down there once a day, and uh, as often as possible, I would try to be the mailman. So uh, one day, I, I'm the mailman, and I come down. You come in the door and, and y you know, stand in the entrance area, and eventually Swamiji will come up and take the mail. He won't speak, but he'll, you know, he'll smile and give him the mail. And then you wait to uh, see if he has any messages to come back. So I'm, you know, I'm just meditating, enjoying. I, I just saw Swami. Oh, that's nice. And, uh, and he comes back. And he hands me a piece of paper, and on this piece of paper is a drawing that I've never seen before. And uh, it was my impression that this is the, the, the original version of the Ananda logo. And I wasn't very artistic-minded, and, and he's looking at me like, what do you think? You know? And I'm thinking, I have no idea what I think. <laughs> I don't know. So... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so I think he was a little disappointed, but, you know, he, he would never, you know. Uh, so he goes back to, to doing whatever he's doing. And I'm now meditating. And I'm going, oh, man, what was that? <laughs> what was that? 
That's a little squiggly line, you know. But I know that there's something here. He wouldn't have shown it to me. So I, I just opened up. I calmed down. And in that moment, in that moment of openness, it was just like um, blinders. When you just simply can't see and the blinders came off. And I felt it. And where did I feel it? Here. I felt it. And that understanding, that intuitive understanding comes in the heart. You open your heart. Swamiji was the most open-hearted person I ever had the good fortune to spend time with. And his very name, Kriya, action, and Kriya, Kriya, uh, meditation, Ananda, bliss, Kriyananda. And his whole life was an example of how we should live open-hearted with joy intuitively connected. This is our path. This is our spiritual family. Namaste. Thank you, Vijay, and all of our beautiful speakers this week. Why don't we stand and stretch? Do you need my water? No. (laughs) Well, as I was looking around the audience, I noticed that there's still no sign of my family this year. It seems as though ever since I've been speaking at Spiritual Renewal Week, they haven't shown up. (laughs) I just hope it's an odd coincidence. So my name is Melody, and I'd like to speak about talking with God and persuading him to respond. (laughs) I was fortunate to grow up in a family where prayer was a familiar practice, not because it was something we had to do being raised Catholic, but because it felt natural to ask for help when we were sincerely in need. So I often heard my parents talk to God, and they encouraged us to do the same. And so we'd ask God to bless most of our meals, even when we ate at places like McDonald's. Actually, especially when we ate there. (laughs) And we also prayed for our friends and family members when they were in need. And we prayed for simple things, too, like needing to find parking spots. And so what I learned from my parents was that it was fun to invite God into whatever we were doing. And it was important to approach him as though he were a friend or a heavenly father who would help us if we were sincerely in need. I also attended a Catholic school as a little girl. And as a part of that school, the children would all go to Mass every Friday. And I remember there were these long periods of silent time for prayer and having a restless mind. I would often try to pass the time by counting things on the walls or how many people were present. And there were times when I remembered to talk to God. And I would ask him things like, why do you seem so far away and silent? Why can't I hear your side of this conversation? I knew that he could hear me, but I was a little confused why I couldn't hear him. 
And later when God brought me to this path, I realized that I hadn't yet learned the techniques that would help me to still my mind and open my heart in order to receive God's response. And I also realized that meditation was one of the best ways to commune with God because when we're doing it correctly, it's not so much a mental act, but really an act of listening, receiving, and feeling God's presence. And I later, when I found Master, it made me realize that I had been yearning for a personal relationship with God, a guru-disciple relationship, where I could have a friend to share all of my thoughts and feelings with, and then to receive guidance in return. And I think Master has been that for many of us and other people around the world. And so how do we talk with God? Master said it is the most difficult accomplishment of all to have a two-sided conversation with God where he speaks. And many saints have heard the voice of God, but why can't we? Master said it's our intuitive telephonic systems that are out of order. (laughs) And God is always calling us on that line, but we do not hear him. And He also said that God does not need a throat in order to speak. It's pretty cool. Um, Because his consciousness is encapsulated in everything, he said that if our prayers are strong enough, those prayer vibrations will bring an immediate vibratory response. I had an experience before I moved to Ananda. I was 17 and in high school preparing to come take the yoga teacher training program here and I was meditating maybe five minutes or less every evening because that's all I could do at the time. My willpower was very weak and my devotion was lacking. And so I created this distance between master and myself. But I thought I just have to keep putting out the effort and someday I will become a strong, dedicated meditator. And I know that once I get to Ananda, everything will be different. I'll be surrounded by other meditators and I'll have the spiritual vibrations to uplift my meditation so I can go deeper and longer. To my surprise, when I was in the program, I struggled a lot at each meditation. It was so hard to focus. 15 minutes felt like an eternity at times. And I just felt like there was this dry emptiness inside that I was longing to be filled with with God's love. And I was really hurt by this, that this continued day by day, probably for a week, that I just wasn't getting any results. I was expecting it and trying too hard. Probably didn't have the right attitude either. And so I kind of got to this place of um, feeling in despair and slightly upset. And I was at a lunch table all by myself, these tears welling up inside, And I began to feel this prayer forming inside. And it said, God, if you do not come to me and show me your presence, the next time I sit to meditate, I will never meditate again. And I was a little taken aback by those words. But I ever really give up meditation? Of course not. I would always keep trying. But in this moment, I needed to show Divine Mother that I was very serious and (laughs) upset. And so that afternoon, we got invited to the meditation retreat to see the grounds there. And I went, even though I had seen the place many times. All I could think about was what I had said to God and what his response would be. So I asked if I could be 
excused, and I realized Babaji's cave would be open. If you've never been there, it's this small, humble temple dedicated to Babaji built in the ground. And I couldn't wait to sit to meditate. So I went in, I sat as close as I could to the altar in desperation, and I closed my eyes, did a prayer, and to my surprise, I felt very calm, very focused. So I began to practice the Hong Sa technique, and with each breath, I felt like I was breathing in waves of peace. And it continued, my heart started to open, and I felt waves of love wash over my body. And I knew in that moment that I was feeling the presence of God, and he had responded to my prayer. After some time, someone came and told me it was time to go, and on the way home, everyone was talking excitedly. But all I could do was just look out the window and thank God and Babaji for the blessings I had just received. And so what I had learned from that experience was that I needed to get God's attention, not just by praying with my mind, but with all the fervor of my heart. A great example of someone who spoke constantly to God was Swami Kriyananda. He always kept this inner conversation going. How can I serve you now, Divine Mother? What would you like me to do, Master, in this new situation? And because of this, there are countless stories of how Swamiji answered people's personal thoughts and prayers. Whether he was doing this consciously or not, I don't know. But what I suspect is that because Swamiji's ego was so free, he didn't have this swarm of egoic desires always hovering over him wherever he went. It was like God's light could just shine through unobstructedly. And because of that, he was a beautiful instrument for God. And Master said that God needs instruments to fulfill his will on this planet. I had an experience with my dad after we had listened to Swamiji give a talk at the Expanding Light. We were sitting in the dining room eating, and we noticed Swamiji come through the dining room doors with a few people who were helping him to sit down behind this table of books that he was offering to sign one of his newest books, uh, Biography of Yogananda. My dad and I sort of caught each other's thought and looked at each other, and my dad said, Oh, no, I forgot my book at home. My dad was staying with me here, and I had just bought him that new book. And I said, don't worry, we can go to the boutique right now and get you the same one or any other of Swamiji's books. I'm sure he would be happy to sign for you. It was a rare moment that there wasn't this huge line up in front of Swamiji and that my dad was here visiting. So we both really wanted him to get a blessing. And my dad thought about it and said, no, that's okay, and kind of looked down, disappointed. And I thought, we can't give up this quickly. This is a great opportunity. And then I started to think, well, maybe he's right. We don't want to bother Swami. I always get nervous around him anyway. And um, maybe there's not enough time to get a book. So we both just kind of sat there looking at our food, wishing the circumstances were different. Within a few minutes, I looked at my dad who was sitting across from me, and this huge, radiant smile and reverent smile lit up his face. He was looking at something behind me that I couldn't see. And in a moment, I started to feel power just coming up behind me, and I heard footsteps approaching. I thought, this must be Swamiji. Before I had time to turn around, Swami was standing right next to me at our table, and him and my dad 
their eyes met and their hands reached out and held hands. And my dad said, thank you so much. And there was this deep moment between the two of them. And Swamiji responded, it's so good to see you. And then he turned out the door and left. My dad and I sat there just in disbelief at what had just happened. Why Swamiji chose to come to our table and leave out that door, it must have been divinely planned. And my dad received a beautiful blessing that day, much better than a book signing, I think. (laughs) And it was like God was saying to us in that moment, you must remove all doubt from your mind that I will come to you. If all you truly want is me and my blessing, I will be there for you in an instant. And there is a Bengali saying that if we give a soul call to God as the universal mother, she cannot remain silent. She has to speak. Isn't that beautiful? Swami and Master recommended that we think of God in the aspect of a divine mother because The essence of a mother is love and forgiveness for her children, no matter what wrongs they have done. And I also read when preparing for this talk that Master said, the most beautiful form of human love that God has given us is between a mother and a child. This was really touching for me because I've been experiencing motherhood for the past year and a half, and it truly has been sacred. Now, no one could have prepared me for the challenges of motherhood, that's for sure. Even though our teachings of reincarnation say that each of us have all been mothers many times, for some strange reason, this feels like the first time for me. (laughs) And there are times when I have to leave home to work for a few hours, and our son Japa, who's a year and a half, um, spends time with his dad, who they have so much fun together. And whenever I leave the house, I always have to sneak out so there aren't tears when I go. And when I leave, it always feels like a long time that I've been gone. I can't wait to get home and see Japa again. And when I get home, the funny thing is almost every time he notices me, even if he's having a fun time, he gets upset and runs over to me as though saying, where have you been? How long have you been gone? How come I didn't notice that you left? (laughs) And I'm like, okay, great. Here's all these emotions I have to deal with, but I love to. And um, I thought this is kind of similar to our relationship with Divine Mother. We may lose the awareness of her presence for some time, maybe years or lifetimes go by, and we think we're doing pretty good on our own, except nothing ever truly fulfills us. And then one day she gives us a glimpse of herself and this touch of love that is so overwhelming, we don't know how we ever lived without her and how could we live another moment. And then we just feel that love, we're absorbed in it. And so I just wanted to close by saying now that we all have Divine Mother in this lifetime, let us not lose sight of her again. Just like the chant says, blind eyes see the Ma hiding everywhere. My name's Narayan, and with my wife, uh, we serve in Los Angeles. 
I want to echo Maria's uh, gratitude. You know, when you come to Spiritual Renewal Week, it's, the words are, as Master said, they're inadequate. And we really feel the heart of Yogananda and Swamiji. As Master said, follow the living link of the Masters. And of course, I know we have all been touched by the living link of Swami Kriyananda. But that link is alive through you. And I, uh, from my heart, I want to thank you. Because just being here for a few days, it's like your cup overfloweth. (laughs) And there's so much joy. There is so much devotion. There is so much humility and sincerity that it is it's deeply moving. And I just wanted to share that. You know, being in Los Angeles, Master called it the Benares of the West. It's also a pretty crazy place. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, um, one of our main ministries is uh, driving in traffic. <laughs> so we're working on a new class series called Traformations. Uh, in still traffic, thy exhaust and I are one. Heart to heart meeting, front bumper and back bumper meeting. <laughs> and you know, you drive around Los Angeles and you're almost assaulted with billboards and media and the like. And if you recall, a few years ago, Gyandev, who is around here somewhere, used to share the Maya Awards, if you remember these. And these, you know, and I started driving around Los Angeles, and I said, wow, that would be a great Maya Award candidate. That would be too. So I took a few mental notes. I wanted to share a few. One was a billboard that said, fall in love with yourself again. <laughs> this is an advertisement for a plastic surgeon. <laughs> This is true. This is, I am not making this up. Uh, and the adjunct to that one, if you can squeeze it, we can freeze it. That's uh, for liposuction. <laughs> I saw a sign that said third eye wellness, and I thought, wow, this would be really neat. Maybe it's a new spiritual center. It was a medical marijuana shop. Um, (laughs) But there was, my favorite was a protest sign that said, I don't know if Peru is here today, but the yuga experts I think will appreciate this one. What do we want? Time travel. When do we want it? It's irrelevant. You know, but I thought that was the perfect sign for us as devotees. What do we want? As Sai Ganesh sang so beautifully, God, God, God. And when do we want him? It's irrelevant. (laughs) We have him, as Master said, in that I, I, everywhere state of consciousness. And God is is with us all the time, and yet 
of course, we don't always feel that oneness and that closeness and that connection. I'm sure all of you have felt times where you haven't felt close to God, where you have felt rather quite far apart. I recall a time when I first read Autobiography of a Yogi and I was so thrilled with Master's vibration and the authenticity and the heart that he shared through that book. And I came to Ananda Village for the first time. And then I returned back to the East Coast. I was working in New York City at the time. And I was living on my own in an apartment in Hoboken, New Jersey. And I was reading Autobiography of a Yogi on my bed or my couch by myself. And I had bought a tape here at Ananda Village, a tape of chants. And it, the tape was playing in the background, and I was reading that chapter. It's when Master's mother passed away, and he was so distraught. Remember, he was about, I think, 11 or so years old. And he expressed so openly. You know, he almost threw himself off a train, he said at one point. And I was reading that passage, and that's when the Divine Mother came to him and said, always have I loved thee, ever shall I love thee. And right when I was reading that passage, that chant was playing on the tape. And I never forgot that. Remember, as Swamiji said in the oratorio, know that you are not alone. I mean, that's one of the most important lessons for us to digest on the path uh, because we get, as Vijay was sharing, we get hypnotized by our separation to literally just know that God is with us all the time. And how does he come to us? Well, God becomes the topic this morning is God, how do we develop a personal relationship with God? And God becomes personal to us through people. I, you know, I remember meeting Jaya on the East Coast, and he was, it was a Korea preparation class, and you know, what I realized is people from Ananda, they spoke from inspiration. They spoke from their own experience. And you know, I wanted to bottle it up and take it back with me. But we have all these different experiences of people in our community that are a personal expression of God's love. Think about how much Divine Mother loves us with all the love we feel from one another here. It's remarkable. I wanted to share a, a personal, another personal story about Swamiji. I was working at Crystal Clarity uh, with Seva. It was a, a great joy to work with Seva there. And I got a gardenia, you know, that, that beautiful fragrance, the gardenia flowers. And Seva would come and water this flower every day. And I believe it was, you know, the gardenia did well because of Seva, not because of me. <laughs> it was on my desk. And it just started to bloom. And it was just this incredible fragrance. And I had to go over to the Crystal Hermitage to help Swamiji with something. I think it was, you know, giving a book for someone to sign or what have you. 
And his cousin, and many of you met his cousin, Bet, who is, is that? No, not Marge, it was the other one. And she was uh, very spiritual as well, and Swamiji was hosting her for, uh, for lunch or, or something. And I, I, ha- I just felt inspired when I was going over to run this errand to bring the gardenia with me and, and give it to Swamiji. So I, I came and to give Swamiji the gardenia, and Bet was there in the, you know, the living room there of the Crystal Hermitage. And Swamiji, just very simply and very much himself, he said, Bet, this is my friend Phil. And I was just, it sort of stopped me in my tracks. I thought, I am his friend? <laughs> he is my friend. You know, he is my divine friend. And it was almost as if he, uh, we have our beautiful uh, music ministry, Bhagavati and Ramesha. What is that song? The Shawl of Gold? For its kindness softens the human heart. And it, Swamiji's kindness in that moment it softened the hard shell of my heart. And I, I was just so deeply moved. It's just a very simple experience, a very simple exchange, but that's how Swamiji lived his life. Everything that he did was impregnated with that consciousness of the Divine Mother and of Master. There's... Um, so I wanted to share to well how can we how can we develop this relationship with divine mother how can we cultivate a deeper relationship i think it was uh, gyandev was talking about some article saying you know learn to count things it doesn't matter what you count and Think of the beautiful things that we could count, the number of beautiful devotees and, and saints that you know here in this community and in your life. Think of all the things, how many things could you count in your life that you're grateful for? We can practice God's presence. Like Master said, the minutes are more important than the years. If we're if we're sincere and we're open, God can come to us at any moment, at, at any time. It's funny. I was, you know, Divine Mother looks out for you. I was preparing for this talk, and I'm thinking, you need to, you need to immerse yourself. And you got the backup plan, and uh, you're reading, and all of this thing. Uh, and I wanted to sing, God, God, God. <laughs> well, Divine Mother saved me. <laughs> I was, Dharma uh, said, what do you need your computer for? You're driving. I said, I want to listen to God, God, God. She said, you need to drive. <laughs> I said, well, if I die driving, you know, <laughs> God would be on my mind. I'd like to close with, there's a beautiful story of the saint with two bananas. Actually, quick joke, have you a Roman, I, I have uh, Catholic scars too, sorry. A, a Roman walks into a bar and says, give me five drinks. It's a Roman numeral. 
Okay. <laughs> okay, that was bad. Enjoy the badness. But this is not the same with two bodies. This is the same with two bananas. There is a very uh, arrogant man. He's very wealthy, and he had a lot of followers, and they followed him out of fear. And he and his two cohorts one day, he wanted to go in India to the, the village guru, the village saint, and he wanted to be accepted as a disciple. And not out of sincerity, but simply out of self-importance. And so he, along with his two cohorts, um, and his wife, who is a humble, sincere, silent woman, they came to this guru, and the man said, I want to be accepted as your disciple. And the guru very calmly said, I'll accept all of you, as disciples, on one condition. I'm going to give each of you two bananas, and you're to go and eat these two bananas before sunset without anyone seeing you. And so the arrogant man took the bananas and went to a friend's home and very hastily and greedily ate them. And his two cohorts went to a, a cave nearby and they ate the bananas thinking that no one had seen them. And then they, they came back right before dusk and said, ah, we have passed your test. Now you must accept us as disciples. And right at that time, the wife came back as well. And she was still holding the two bananas. And she came very humbly to the guru and said, Beloved saint, I am sorry, I have failed your test because I went to eat these two bananas under a palm tree, but their leaves were, were playing and they were speaking to me. And then I went to the ocean and I sat by the ocean and the waves were lapping and they were calling to me and touching me, and I couldn't eat them there. And then I went and sat by a bed of flowers, and their sweetness and their fragrance spoke of a love divine. And I couldn't eat your two bananas, so I'm sorry I failed your test. And the saint said, no, my dear, you have passed my test. Through your humility, your sincerity, and your devotion, I accept you as a disciple. And then he turned to the husband and said, and she is your guru. <laughs> <laughs> so let's together not fall in love with our little self again. Let's fall in love with the self. Yeah, let's stand and acting as channels for Divine Mother and the Masters, feeling our connection and our oneness with them.
sharing the heart of Yogananda, his divine love, bliss, and practical spiritual wisdom with all true thirsty souls. Let's rub our palms together.